You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individuals' employers, nor the official opinions of C-19. Hi there, I'm Doug Guerra, the incoming chair of the C-19 Podcast Subcommittee. I've been fortunate enough to work on this little project in the public humanities under the leadership of Zain Yao ever since our first episode on C-19's climate conference two years ago. The episode you're about to hear, like that one, is an introduction to the motivating ideas and people behind C-19's upcoming conference in Florida. Meredith McGill, Martha Schoolman, and Jennifer James each address conceptual and practical dimensions of the conference that we hope will be useful to you. Whether you're scrambling to finish a seminar proposal, plotting a schedule for the trip, or simply, like me, listening to others as a way to prompt new thoughts of your own, following new trains of figuration, argument, history, wherever they may lead. Sound encourages wandering, the tone or cadence producing modes of descent even when the content suggests otherwise. I love that dimension of what we do. Speaking of what we do, this episode is also an introduction to an amazing new team of podcast producers who've come on board for the 2019-2021 subcommittee cycle. Rachel Bossio, Paul Fess, Itai Orr, and Ashley Ratner. We'll be on the ground at the conference, scouting episodes and fielding questions come April, but you don't have to wait until then. If you have ideas, send them our way at c19podcast at gmail.com. Our CFPs are quarterly, but our mentorship has a rolling deadline, so if you want a sounding board for taking an idea from paper to performance, drop us a line. And now, without further ado, Season 3, Episode 1, Descent, Insights into the Sixth Biennial Conference. The exact nature of dissent is a subject that has concerned political thinkers and agitators since the founding of the United States. Essential component of any democratic experiment, dissent is a means by which to signal refusals of cooperation with established modes of authority. And yet dissent is not revolution. Its connection to liberal ideas of toleration can ironically transform dissent into a vehicle for maintaining the political status quo. In the 19th century, dissent was employed by a broad range of movements and societies representing disparate aims and ideologies, from abolition to suffrage to temperance and more. Still other canonical writers like Emerson and Thoreau internalized dissent, producing a literature and an intellectual tradition deeply skeptical of collective nonconformity. I'm Rachel Basio, Assistant Professor of English at LaGuardia Community College in the City University of New York. In this installment of the C-19 podcast, we are talking to organizers of the 6th Biennial Conference, which engages with dissent in part to explore what 19th century American literature and culture has to teach us about our responses to the current political age. In our first segment, Paul Fess talks with C-19 President Meredith McGill about the inspirations for and practicalities of this year's conference in Coral Gables, Florida. This is uh, Paul Fess. I'm on uh, the C-19 uh, podcast subcommittee. Um, I'm here interviewing uh, Meredith McGill, who is the president of uh, C-19 and professor um, at Rutgers University. 
Um, and we're talking about the um, upcoming C19 comp, uh, conference that's going to take place um, the first week of April in Coral Gables, Florida. Um, so, Professor McGill, um, what was the motivation behind this conference's theme of dissent? What kinds of conversations do you hope this theme will open up in the field of C19 studies? Well, dissent has long been central to the study uh, of 19th century literature and culture. Uh, our field of study really begins in the era of revolutions, the long 19th century, uh, is split by the struggle over the abolition of slavery at mid-century, and concludes with mass demonstrations and anarchist violence over the question of an eight-hour day, work day, struggles for over black civil rights and women's suffrage. There's plenty of dissent threading its way through the 19th century. But I really do think that the 2016 election focused our attention on the need for dissent, uh, whether it's marching for or against particular policies or calling attention to issues like climate change, but also I think our everyday desire uh, often to exempt ourselves from state actions. And I'm thinking here of popular but seemingly empty statements of disavowal such as not my president or not in my name. They feel very powerful emotionally, uh, but may not do so much politically. Uh, so the real question we were trying to get at, uh, sort of two-part question, can studying 19th century dissent help us understand our current moment? But also can our own present desire to express individual dissent or collective uh, dissent uh, help us to understand the 19th century? Those are the really the core questions that we're trying to get at. I should say one of the reasons I really like this topic is it's both highly conventional and potentially radical in its implications. I don't think the politics of dissent are at all obvious. Um, if you think about our national myths, uh, the myth that the U.S. was founded by spiritual dissenters, founding fathers, escaping the tyranny of state-imposed religious belief, uh, that myth itself is a creation of the early 19th century. Uh, it was designed to shore up national loyalty through annual Founders' Day celebrations. Uh, so if you've got that myth in your head, uh, it comes from the 19th century. And, and of course, you can't get more canonical than Ralph Waldo Emerson's call for nonconformity and self-reliance. Uh, whoso shall be a man shall be a nonconformist. Um, but I think the Emerson essay has long raised for scholars the question of whether nonconformity, individual nonconformity is sufficient, uh, or is it ethically suspect? Uh, you could see it as inward turning and uh, fundamentally asocial in its implications. So again, this is back to the question of the politics of dissent. Uh, and also, you know, uh, Emerson often raises the question of what the relationship between individual dissent is and organized reform movements, such as anti-slavery, temperance, and women's rights. And Emerson was really skeptical about all of them. Uh, so uh, we, really, we've got the question of dissent and its politics at the core of 19th century American literature. Uh, I think one interesting thing that you're bringing up here is that there's a completely different historiography uh, possible for um for dissent, you know, that um, it, it is both something about our um, founding kind of ideology or myth or, or whatever you want to call it, but also um, something that is, um, that is also not a part of that, right? That is, there's this other tradition of, of, of dissent, right? Yeah, it can be both the most conventional thing to think of yourself as an American dissenter uh, and a quite a radical position to take and one for which you'll pay a great price socially, politically. Uh, so that the indeterminacy of dissent uh, and, and actually um, finding ways uh, collectively to, to tease out the multiple strands of dissent in 19th century American culture, I think would be very helpful. Yeah, and um, uh, that, that's one thing that came to my mind whenever you were um, talking about um the sort of individualistic kind of dissent uh, coming from Emerson, um, that there is this, 
you know, also like collect the, you know, there's tons of examples of collective dissent um, that it would be interesting for people to explore um, at the conference. Right, all those major reform movements uh, that the 19th century is known for. Uh, but I do think that there's a question, there's a real question about uh, how much dissent a particular society can tolerate uh, and when dissent is part of the problem. You know, when does being mm-hmm. part of a loyal opposition uphold the very state uh, that's under critique or the very policies that are under critique? Uh, so, you know, you could think about dissent is in some ways too conservative uh, for from a radical perspective, uh, right. right? It falls short of revolution uh, or radical change. So this will be the third C-19 conference offering seminars. Um, what types of feedback did you receive about previous seminars? What What's the most exciting about uh, the seminars this time around? Yeah, the seminars have been hugely popular. Uh, we've gotten really nothing but um, positive feedback from the membership. Um, we started in 2014, so we've since then we've steadily expanded the number of seminars we offer. So there are more places than ever, uh, more opportunities to participate in them. Um, I participated and I led a seminar in intellectual property back in 2014, uh, and I love the free flow of ideas uh, and the kinds of connections that seminar members made between their projects. Um, as you may know, participants in seminars read short position papers, five pages in advance, and they have the opportunity then over the two hours in which the seminar meets uh, to really discuss a single question, area, or approach as a group. And one one thing I'd really do, uh, would recommend is for people coming to C19 for the first time time, participating in a seminar gives you a kind of instant cohort. Uh, It's a really good way to get to know scholars who share uh, interests, uh, and uh, they become colleagues you'll keep running into as you attend panels over the course of the weekend. Uh, with our, we, do, we are doing something new this year. We're offering uh, 10 seminars, but we're also permitting graduate students to apply to more than one. You can only participate in one, uh, but we wanted to make sure that it wasn't just a, for people who really wanted to be part of a, a seminar. They had two shots at, uh, at joining one. Uh, so uh, this is to say we really recommend seminars for graduate students and early career scholars um, who are looking for mentorship uh, and also trying to find like-minded colleagues from other institutions working on similar topics. Uh, so if there's no one in your department working on some of these topics, 19th century American culture and uh, Asian American culture or race and environment or utopianism and radicalism, uh, you'll be able to find a seminar full of scholars interested in these topics at C19. Yeah, I had the uh, the good fortune to participate in uh, Caritha Mitchell's um, uh, seminar last last year on violence and performance. And it really helped me hmm. move uh, move a paper along that I was working on. Yeah, I mean, young young scholars often ask, "How do I find fellow scholars to be on a panel with mm-hmm. me?" And and sometimes uh, when you're new to C19, it makes sense to try to join a seminar, and then you begin to make the kind of connections uh, that will uh, stay with you in your throughout your career. Yeah. Um, so, um, are there any uh, other variations on the traditional panel format in the works? Um, how do you think the uh, these different modes of exchange encourage productive and collegial dissent at a gathering like this? We're mostly going to um, the most of the conference will center on uh, panels uh, that get submitted as such, or individual papers that the uh, program committee and the uh, executive committee put into panels. Uh, but we have cleared some time on Saturday uh, for a plenary session. Uh, really at the instigation of, uh, at the suggestion of a number of uh, 
uh, our members. Uh, and this session, it's going to be Saturday, about an hour, hour and a half on Saturday afternoon. We're going to devote to discussing the relationship between our field of study, uh, 19th century American literature and culture, and the profession at large, uh, given the jobs crisis and the move towards adjunctification across the academy. What we want to do is think together and talk together about what we can do as a field to put pressure where it might make a difference. And some of the ideas that mem the members have suggested is uh, asking uh, folks who've been successful, colleges and universities who've been successful in protecting tenure-track jobs to share with us their strategies for doing so. Uh, how do we keep tenure-track jobs uh, from being redefined as casual or exploitable labor? Uh, and how do we maintain enrollments in our classes? Because oftentimes hiring is key to enrollment. Uh, so who's been, who out there in the membership has been successful in uh, enrolling the American Literature Survey uh, as students uh, peel off for other majors and other core curriculum classes. Uh, historically, the American Lit Survey has helped departments hold on to tenure and tenure-track jobs uh, in American literature. Uh, so we're interested in discussing those issues with people who've been successful. We're also really interested in uh, figuring out how C19 can change with the times. Uh, how can we make C19 more inviting for scholars who are off the tenure track in a wide array of positions, say in libraries, museums, or DH centers? Uh, we're still working on how we're going to organize this session, uh, but we've carved time for it in the conference schedule. Uh, and I hope it will do more than just allow us all to collectively blow off some steam, which is productive, uh, uh, but maybe not uh, productive enough. Uh, we want to be able to discuss good ideas uh, that we can bring back to our colleges and universities, and also to think seriously, collectively, about the future of C-19, given the uh, crisis in the academy. We think that C-19 is going to need to change with the times. We don't want to pretend uh, that two years from now, uh, the the field and the profession are going to look exactly like they do now. Uh, uh, so uh, we're really looking for feedback from the membership uh, and good ideas. Uh, we, basically, we'd like to act as a collective, uh, dissenting from the current conditions of the, of the academy uh, and uh, trying to figure out how we can work together uh, to improve conditions uh, for ourselves, for young scholars entering the field, and for scholars who want to stay research productive uh, in positions that aren't that your conventional tenure, tenure track uh, jobs, which, as you know, they're increasing numbers of these things. Uh, and C19 has got to adjust and understand where the, the, the good scholarship is coming from. Dissent, as we've just heard, figures in our orientation and attitude toward the scholarly values of the 21st century university and toward our intellectual community more broadly. With our conference sponsored by two major universities in the Miami Coral Gables area, the University of Miami and Florida International University, obviously the recent history of Florida as a site of national contestation and dissent come to mind. It might nevertheless seem an unlikely location for a meeting of scholars working in the long 19th century. And yet, as we find out, both cities offer an array of attractions and archives highlighting traditions that can challenge conventional progressive ideas of what constitutes dissent. In our next segment, Ashley Ratner, Assistant Professor of American Literature at Tuscaloom University, speaks with Martha Schoolman, Associate Professor of English at Florida International University and one of the on-site coordinators for this year's conference. Florida is obviously a very large state with a, with a long and complex history, but one of the really interesting things about living in South Florida, in, this, in the part of South Florida where we are, kind of Miami, Coral Gables, is that we're actually a very new, uh, this is a really new city, it's only, um, Coral Gables is maybe about 100 years old, Miami a little bit older. Um, 
so it's a funny place to talk about C19 in that sense. Um, but the way I sort of think about dissent here is there's a one kind of dissent that Miami is fairly famous for, which is the um, anti-communist kind of um, Cuban dissenting tradition, um, which isn't really what we mean in C19 because we want dissent to be only progressive. But the kind of reality of our of our lives here is that it's very much part of the kind of political culture and it's very specific ex, um, eccentric ways. So that's the kind of the very present. Um, uh, kind of on the streets, we're pretty close to Little Havana, um, where we are in Coral Gables, the hotels, you can walk to Little Havana. So the kind of um, anti-communist, you can buy, you know, toilet paper with Fidel Castro's face on it, like that kind of thing, is, is that's very materially present. Um, but one, as a 19th century scholar, obviously one of the things that I'm interested in and given to think about in Florida a lot is the, um, is the continuing survivance of the Seminole people. Um, who describe themselves as the unconquered. They never signed a treaty. Um, they, and they're still present and thriving. Um, I mean, we're on Seminole land in Miami, but not, um, not right here, but the Seminole Nation's headquarters is in Hollywood, Florida, which is very close to us. Uh, they have various reservations around the state, many of which are kind of within 50 to 100 miles. Um, and to their, um, so that kind of very long dissenting tradition is also very present, and that's something I think we're going to um, find ways to engage um, as part of the conference. Okay, thank you. Narrowing the view to our host institutions, what should people know about the scholarly cultures of Miami? Mm -hmm. How is dissent a way to understand the position of the university in the U.S., its concerns, or the concerns of the people it serves? Sorry, there's a lot there. I guess there. there. <laughs> A few different, I mean, so the institutions generally, I, I imagine to our uh, non-Florida uh, listeners, University of Miami is the better known institution, although FIU is actually, Florida International University is one of the largest uh, higher education institutions in the country. We have about 55,000 students, which is fairly massive. Um, so the two universities kind of on paper seem like opposites. One is public, one is private, one is large, one is small. Uh, one is a more elite institution, one is a more working class institution. But from another perspective, they are very similar and kind of work in consort. In concert, uh, they work in concert. Um, both are very kind of south-facing and ocean-facing institutions, not only geographically, but both are full of Latin Americanists and Caribbeanists and marine scientists uh, and environmental humanists. And we are always talking about the Everglades across uh, um, across departments. We're always talking about the Caribbean. We're always talking about the Atlantic. Um, so I think that basic kind of intellectual commonality really has allowed for a lot of exchange. Um, so certainly the humanists um, in town tend to work together. Uh, the C19 conference is a great example um, of that. Both institutions are contributing. Both institutions are lending uh, resources and faculty to the cause. Um, we're going to have events at both institutions. Um, in terms of the university generally, I mean, neither university, I would say, is an, an institution that's on paper especially um, uh, encouraging of dissent. You know, they're all in that kind of neoliberal university model um, that we're all kind of struggling with, I think, in the humanities. Um, but at the same time, they're both places where diversity of research thrives, where, you know, their research collections um, uh, kind of feature all kinds of dissenting uh, traditions and where um, kind of 
political work and student organizing also thrives. So, I mean, as, as with everywhere, the university is in a complicated place, but they, they don't mind us having a big conference on dissent, so, that, so there's that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Good. What kind of special events will be featured at the conference? Let's see. Well, as you can imagine, we're talking right now in July, so we're at that point where, okay, it's a, <laughs> yeah. new, it's a new fiscal year, everyone has to sign on the dotted line. But what we're fairly certain of at this point is um, that we want to have a kickoff reception at the Wolfsonian Collection, which is an FIU kind of administered institution on Miami Beach that has a really interesting collection and very closely connected with our theme uh, because it's... Um, what do they call it? So it's a kind of design, architecture, and um, what they sometimes describe as the propaganda arts. <laughs> so you can find communist manifestos or you know manifest manifestos of communist cells, zines, um, uh, Soviet posters, uh, and also um, travel industry advertising. So it's a really interesting collection of really fascinating. Um, kind of art and material culture that's not especially kind of author or artist based. So they put together really interesting combinations yeah. of, um, of work. The keynote lecture is uh, Nikhil Singh, and that's going to take place on the University of Miami campus. So we're, the kind of FIU visit is going to be um, the Wolfsonian, and then the University of Miami visit is going to be for the keynote lecture. Um, and we always kind of laugh about this, but the Alumni Center at UM uh, is a very nice building where we're going to be having our, um, uh, where we're going to have, be having the lecture. Um, but it's uh, the room that we're in is going to be is called the uh, the Dwayne the Rock Johnson Living Room because the Rock is a very pl- proud uh, and generous alum to UM, so you have a little bit of Miami um, <laughs> kind of mixed in. Um, I think within the conference, we're working uh, to schedule um, a kind of conversation with a seminal artist and activist, Samuel Tommy, who's a really interesting, interesting um, uh, figure whose um, family history is very much um, kind of enmeshed with the sem- history of the Seminole people and who lives at the Big Cypress Reservation. Um, so we're working with him. That should be really interesting. And we're also working on um, kind of a day trip after programming ends on um, April 5th out to the Miccosukee Reservation, which is kind of the other Creek-descended native group in our region. They're not as large as the Seminole, but um, their reservation is closer to Miami, so we're sort of thinking about the kind of practicalities. And so they're they're located kind of at the edge of the, uh, on the western edge of Miami and kind of on the edge of the Everglades. So we're working on a kind of visit there, and they have some interesting museums, airboat rides, and some kind of um, uh, really interesting guides that can kind of show us around. So that's something that we're working on as well. Do you have any particular recommendations for conference participants in terms of local activities, museums, and the like that might speak to the conference theme? Miami is obviously a very culturally rich and interesting place uh, in terms of music, in terms of food. Uh, general tourism things, um, nice beaches, all that stuff. My favorite place in Miami where all my visitors um, have to go is the Perez Art Museum, which is uh, a modern and contemporary Latin American and Caribbean art museum. And it's it used to be just a basic Miami art museum kind of morphed into the Perez in the last maybe 15 years or so. And it's um, it's not especially 19th century, but it because it emphasizes Latin American art, it's really beautifully... Uh, hung, beautifully chosen, and their exhibitions are always 
um, interesting and thought-provoking and things that you usually don't see in places like New York or, um, or Los Angeles. Um, from what I can see so far, in the spring of 2020, they have a show co-curated with um, a scholar from the University of the West Indies called Foresight in Contemporary Caribbean Art. So if you're interested in the Caribbean um, or Latin America generally or contemporary art generally, the Perez is a great place to go. What are you most excited about with regards to the sixth biennial conference? I think one of the things I, I really love about it, and I think this is why they founded C19 in the first place uh, back at Penn State, is that uh, C19 is truly a gathering of the field. So whereas at American Studies Association or an MLA, you look for the two or three panels that speak to your interests. Uh, at C19, everything is potentially interesting. You know, you can find you know, your closest colleagues and the people who you're kind of working on exactly the same argument um, as when you're uh, taking a panel to go to, but any any room you go and sit down in, you're going to um, find something interesting that you haven't, that you didn't know before that's relevant to your work. So it's an incredibly intellectually rich um, conference. So I guess, uh, and I think the organizers all agree, the first thing I'd encourage is to go to as many panels as you can because they're really good panels. Um, they're carefully chosen, and there's really strong material. I mean, I always find it kind of amazes me, um, you know, my kind of scholarly life outside of C19. Every time I pick up a journal, you know, I'll read something. I'm like, oh, this sounds familiar. Oh, because I heard the talk at C19. Like, you really, the work that's presented at C19 really does make its way out into the world. So it's a really good place to find out the, the state of the field. As a form of negation, dissent is a surprisingly rich concept. And yet in order for it to achieve something beyond the pure quietism of Bartleby's I would prefer not to, dissent must be put to the service of an ideology or political formula, progressive or reactionary, conformist or rebellious. In our final conversation, Itai Orr talks with conference program chair Jennifer Jaynes about new directions in 19th century studies that evolve from different approaches to dissent. Hi, I'm Jennifer James. I'm an associate professor of English at the George Washington University, and I'm the program chair for C19 2020. I'm Itai Orr. I'm a graduate student at Yale University studying 19th century disability studies, and I'm here to interview Jennifer. So Jennifer, um, if you could begin um, by just telling us what you're most excited about with regard to the sixth biennial conference um, this upcoming year. Honestly, I'm excited about every aspect of 2020. Um, the response to the theme descent has been enthusiastic. Um, and I think a lot of that is because it's helping us think through the current moment, uh, the political and social and institutional circumstances we're confronting now. And at the same time, it's allowing us to consider how descent took shape in the 19th century on a variety of fronts. Um, so it's generated a great deal of excitement, and I'm looking forward to seeing the kinds of panels and papers the theme elicits. So um, what are some specific aspects of this conference that you are especially looking forward to? I'm absolutely thrilled about the seminars this cycle. We have 10 more than any other year, and many of them are on topics we haven't yet offered. And we're doing something new this year. We're bringing in a keynote. And our keynote is going to be Nikhil Singh, who is a professor of social and cultural analysis and history at NYU. Uh, we think it's going to be about his new book in progress, Exceptional Empire, Race, Colonialism, and the Origins of U.S. Globalism. Um, he's a really incredible thinker and speaker. And I think that C-19ers should make every effort to attend. It's sure to be a compelling talk. 
Right. So um, from your perspective, what do you see as some of uh, the most exciting trends uh, or directions, new directions in C-19 studies right now? And um, how might we think of these new areas of inquiry in relation to this theme of dissent? Going back to the seminars, I think that the seminars represent some of the most exciting work taking place in the field. Um, new directions in environmental studies, gender, sexuality, queer studies, Native American studies, 19th century Asian American studies, reinvigorated approaches to translation. Um, in all, I think partly what it represents is a field shifting away from texts that are, were previously thought of as a canonical. And we've begun investigating new archives. And with that, we've begun questioning and redefining what we do, who we study, how we study it, and why. Um, what advice would you offer either first-time or returning attendees in order to make the most of the conference? Well, first of all, go to panels. Um, we only meet every two years, and we are the sole organization devoted to um, this field broadly conceived. The quality of the panels I've attended many times is uniformly high. So go to panels. No one likes to be at a panel where there are only a handful of people. Um, Socialize. That's my second uh, piece of advice. Come to our receptions. Sign up for the common meal. Uh, I think that we know that the informal connections that we make can be quite meaningful, both personally and professionally. We want you to enjoy yourself as well as being intellectually stimulated. Great. So now the question is, where can people submit their proposals and what formats are available? Uh, where should they go for more information? That's easy. Um, all you need to do is go to the WordPress site for C19's Descent Conference, click on the submissions tab, and all the information is available there. And the submissions, whether you're submitting to a seminar, an individual paper, or a panel, they're all due on September 2nd. So begin to get your materials ready. Awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. We hope to see you in Coral Gables next spring and remind you to submit abstracts soon. September 2nd will be here before you know it. For more information about C19, the conference, or this podcast, visit c19society.org. This installment was produced by Doug Guerra, Rachel Basio, Paul Fess, Ashley Ratner, and E. Tyor. Special thanks to our contributors, Meredith McGill, Martha Schoolman, and Jennifer James. In closing, I quote a passage from Frederick Douglass's speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? It is 1852, and Douglass is addressing the Rochester Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society, assembled in Corinthian Hall, Rochester, New York. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument, is needed. Oh, had I the ability, and could I reach the nation's ear, I would, today, pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened, the conscience of the nation must be roused, the propriety of the nation must be startled, the hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed, and its crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. Thank you for listening to the C19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19Podcast or get in touch with us at c19podcast at gmail.com. 
Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.